You're listening to GlendaleCC.org and to the Glendale Christian KY podcast on Apple Podcasts as Senior Minister Adam Hale brings us week two of our sermon series, Big Church. Thank you for listening, and as always, we hope that this message encourages you in your walk to love and follow Jesus. Have a great week. Good morning. Good to see all of you here this morning. Happy Father's Day to all of our dads, whether you're a biological father, a stepfather, adoptive father, grandfather, just a, just a man who has stepped in and filled the void in a, in a young person's life. Thanks for the influence that you have had on a young person. Uh, it will mean more to that person than you will ever know, so thank you. This morning we're continuing in part two of our series, Big Church, and so as we get started, I want to ask you a question. Think uh, about two people in your life. There are probably only two people that you can name that were crucified by the Romans around the time of the first century. Think about them. Jesus is one of them, and, and if you can, see if you can name the other one, uh, and I'll give you a hint. It's not a biblical character if you think about um, somebody crucified by the Romans around the time of the first century. Just somebody who? Yeah, Spartacus. There we go. Spartacus, very good. You, you win the prize. Uh, let's see what's in, in here. I got a box of Kleenexes. There we go. You, you can collect that at the at the end of service. Spartacus. Hopefully, hopefully you've seen the movie. If not, you should. You can check Netflix and see if it's on there or something like that. But Spartacus was famous because he led a slave rebellion and then he died. I think he was crucified somewhere around 70 or 71 BC and he led this massive slave rebellion and it was so uh, successful it scared Rome to death. And it scared them to death because Rome had millions and millions of slaves. And they realized that if all these slaves got together and got organized that they could be in real big trouble. And sure enough, Spartacus, who was this gladiator, led this slave rebellion, and, well, it was almost successful. He was finally killed, and you probably know the story. They, they took Spartacus and all of the people who fought with them, and, and they killed them, and they crucified them on the highway from where the final battle was. And as far as they could stretch them, they, they left their bodies, uh, leading them back to Rome, and they left their bodies to rot on these crosses and stretched them as, just as far as they could back to Rome. And the Roman historians made sure that the story of Spartacus was spread far and wide to scare any other would-be slave rebellion leaders from starting another slave rebellion. And it pretty much worked. There weren't really any other slave rebellions of historical note that took place after this. Nobody else really had the courage or the guts to try and do this because they saw what happened to Spartacus and, and all of his followers. And Roman historians made sure to note this. And that's how we know the story of Spartacus here in the 21st century. We know the story of Spartacus because of these Roman historians who made sure to note note the story of it. The real mystery is how in the world do we know the story of Jesus? Why is it that that we know the story of a Jewish carpenter who was crucified by, by Rome like so many other people? Rome crucified a lot of people. Why is it that we know the story of a man who was basically living in the armpit of the Roman Empire in Judea? Nobody really wanted to go to Judea. Why is it that we even know his name? Why is it that we know his story? Because nobody important really wrote about him. Roman historians didn't really write about Jesus. Jewish historians didn't really write about Jesus. And yet you know more about the life of Jesus than you know about any Roman emperor. 
Think about it. We have four counts of the life of Jesus, don't we? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have four counts of the life of Jesus. And you know more about the life of Jesus than you know about any Roman emperor. You can probably name a couple Roman emperors. We know Julius Caesar and, and Nero. Think about this. We name our children after, after uh, the followers of Jesus, you know, Paul and John and Luke and Matthew and Mark. We name our children after uh, the followers of Jesus. We name our dogs after Roman emperors. Nero, right? That's what we name our dogs. You know more about the life of Jesus than you do about any Roman emperor. It's absolutely, absolutely incredible. And the question is, how do we know so much? Now, there are a couple of different ways to approach this. There are historians who look for natural causes, which is good. That's what historians are supposed to do. A good historian asks the question, how is it that the church is so large? And how is it that a long, long time ago, this guy named Jesus did some things and now a third of the world's population believes Jesus is somehow connected to God? Those are two undeniable things, that, that, the world's popula- that a third of the world's population believes in God and that it, that it got started with a, with a man named Jesus. So historians ask the question, how did that happen? How did this Jesus movement get started? And how did it spread and why did anybody pay attention? Really, how in the world did his name even make it out of the first century? And so the secular historian asks the question, and people like me read their answers, and, and uh, I read books that try to answer that question, and, and articles and scholarly reports, and there are people who write about this, and, and, and you can take it up for a hobby as yourself, or you can just take my word for it when, when I say that when you read their explanations, and, and you read the explanation, and you go, okay, that just doesn't really explain it. That's really not a good explanation. There, there are natural causes, and when I say natural cause, I mean like if you were to go to a Christian doctor and they say, well, you have strep throat, and, and we're looking for a natural cause, and the natural cause is God gave you strep throat. And because God gave you strep throat, I'm not going to write you a prescription. And you would say, well, I'm going to go find another doctor because I want a prescription, right? And let my preacher tell me God gave me strep throat. I want a prescription, right? That's the natural cause. That's what, that's what these a lot of these secular historians kind of say, and we're just like, that doesn't add up. That's not a good enough uh, explanation, right? It just, doesn't, it just doesn't explain how the name of Jesus survived the first century, how his teachings made it out of the first century, how this movement survived Rome. When Rome crushed all of these other movements, how this movement survived the first century and how it captured a third of the world's population. It's absolutely incredible. Now, there's another explanation. There's a, there's a second explanation, and it's the explanation of the eyewitnesses. And this is where our story begins. This is where we began last week. The eyewitnesses say, here's exactly what happened. A guy named Luke, he interviewed a bunch of people, and, and he, he put it in an orderly account, and we call it the book of Acts. It's, it's where we started last week. And he says, there's an eyewitness account of how the church started. And, and again, it's where we started last week. He says the church started as a movement. There were, it started with a handful of people, remember about 120 people we said, and they, they all got together and they said, here's what we saw. We saw Jesus and we saw him crucified and there were a lot of people that said, yeah, we saw Jesus crucified. And then these 120 people, they said, not only did we see him crucified, but we saw him rise from the dead. And then on the day of Pentecost, they went out and they preached the message that Jesus rose from the dead. And about 3,000 people accepted that message and they were baptized into Christ. And, and the church began on that day and it started as a movement and it was big. And the church was born. But understand this, the church was a movement of people, disorganized and random. The church was a movement of people with a simple mission. And it's our, our mission. It's the same mission. 
that, that people would know that Jesus has risen from the dead and that people would embrace the teachings of Jesus. And so they went out from their community and they began to spread the good news and it was a totally outward-focused movement. But do you know what happened over time? Over time, the church got buildings and the church got organized, which, of course, the church had to get organized, didn't it? And, and we're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks, but, but there began to be a hierarchy and, and then people got in control and people realized that they could leverage religion to control people. And before long, this outwardly focused movement that was all about love and acceptance and, and hey, we don't care what color your skin is or, or where you're from. We just want you to know that Jesus is the Christ, Son of the living God, that He's risen from the dead. We just want you to know that. This outwardly focused movement, it began to turn inward. And one thing I've learned is that churches make the transition from outwardly focused to inwardly focused really, really quickly. Andy Stanley says that the gravitational pull of the local church is always toward the insiders. It's always toward the insiders. What he means by that is that, is that the, the pull toward for, for the church is always to gravitate toward what's comfortable for those that are already sitting in the pew. It's always easiest to do what's, what's best for us who are already here. It's always easy to focus on, on who are already here, not on who are out there. But this movement of the church it started focused on the outside, not on the inside. Because there was no inside. There was no inside. It was all an outwardly focused movement. And churches, this gravitational pull is always toward the insiders, and churches become very insider-focused very quickly. It happens, and you have probably been a part of a church like that. I have been a part of a church like that. Many of us could tell stories of churches that have been very insider-focused. And In fact, you could, you, I have no doubt you could tell a story about that. Some of you probably grew up in churches like that, and, and maybe, maybe you've been hurt by churches like that. Maybe you were a part of that, and your parents got divorced, and your church didn't know what to do with that, and so mama had to leave or dad had to leave the church, and, and, and your family just said, we're not going to do that, and so everybody left or or you were at a church and there was a church split and these deacons hated those deacons and, and that group of deacons hated that group of deacons and it was really all about a deacon's wife anyway and, and everybody was talking about that deacon's wife and, and there was going to be, you know, they were going to throw the pastor out and so your family just said, no, we're, we're not going to do that. We're, we're, we're not going to deal with that. And, or maybe you were old enough to just say, no, I'm, I'm not going to mess with that. Forget it. My pagan friends are nicer than, than the, the people at church. Why in the world would I waste my time with that? Or maybe you saw something in the church and maybe you just got bumped and around and you got hurt by a local church and you, and you think about your story and, and, and everybody has a story to tell. And you think about your story and then you read like you know Acts 1 and 2 and 3 and the chapters that we're going to read in the next few weeks and it doesn't look anything like the local church in the first century. In the first century, the local church loved each other. And it seemed like the only thing that you had to believe and the only thing you had to know, the rallying point wasn't how you took communion or if you were a member or if you knew the songs. The rallying point was that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And if you believed that, you were in. High five, that's all you need to know, right? And it, it wasn't, it wasn't any, anything about the things that we make it about now. It was, it was all about Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's risen from the dead. If you believe that, you're in. And if you don't believe that, how can we help you believe that? And, and in the meantime, if you don't believe that, in the meantime, how can we help you believe that? And, and we're going to love you and serve you because you're not the enemy. You're not the enemy. How can we help you believe that? Because you're not the enemy. How many times do we make people 
who don't believe that feel like they're the enemy. People who don't believe what we believe are not the enemy. Satan is the enemy. People who don't believe what we believe are not the enemy. Our job is just to help them believe what we believe. And we do that by loving and serving them. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We just want to help them discover what we've discovered. And we do that by loving and serving them. And that was the first century church. That was it. That was the first century church. They loved and they served people. But you see, churches, they make this transition from being outsider-oriented to insider-oriented. And when they do that, they get really judgmental. And who would want to go to one of those? And if you've been burned by the church, if you've ever been burned by the church, or if you're an anti-church person, I'm just telling you, I want to apologize on behalf of the, of the 21st century church. Because when you look at the original church, at the first century church, it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. In fact, there's a verse that we're going to look at in a couple of weeks that said that in Jerusalem, even though there was this tension around Jesus and, and all of this stuff, there was this tension that the, it says that the church actually had favor with the people because it was unique and it was remarkable and it was attractive and it was even winsome. There was this, there was this, there was this tension, but they had favor with the people. And, that, and consequently, because they had favor with the people, the church grew, church grew big very quickly. But churches turn in on themselves quickly. And did you know that our church is not immune from that subtle turn, turn, turn where it's all about us because the gravitational pull is to focus on us, not on them. And one of the ways, and here's where we're going to focus today, one of the ways you know whether a church is still on track, whether it's still on track with what God intended when he launched the church is how a church prays. So that's what we're going to look at today. In fact, let me give you sort of a little phrase that it almost rhymes. How a church prays indicates whether or not a church has strayed. How a church prays, and specifically how the leaders in a church prays, how the people in a church prays, how a church prays indicates whether or not the church has strayed. So here's what we're going to do today in the time that we have left. Today we're going to open the Scriptures to Acts chapter 4. And we're going to read together the first prayer that the early church prayed. But before we do that today, we're going to look at their prayer. Before we look at their prayer, I want to talk to you for a couple of minutes about what we pray about, about what you and I pray about. And I know what you pray about already. And I know this because we all kind of pray the same thing. Here's how we pray for the most part. And there are exceptions. There are exceptions to the rule because there are some highs and, the low, and lows. But for the average prayer, here's what we pray. Pretty much we pray for ourselves and we pray for our family and we pray for two or three sick people. That's our prayer. In a nutshell, for the most part, we pray for ourselves, we pray for our family, and then we pray for two or three sick people. That's how we pray. And the things that we pray for ourselves are absurd for the most part. There are some extreme situations here and there, and so I'm not poking fun, and I'm not going to suggest that you stop praying anything that you're currently praying, okay? That's not my point. But the stuff that we pray for, for the most part, is stuff that's going to happen anyway. And it does not tax God's energy. You know, like, let me give you an example. We pray, like, please give us a safe trip. All right, you ever pray that? Anybody ever pray that prayer? Please, God, give us a safe trip. I, I pray it with my family, okay? Um, all right, fasten your seatbelt. Obey the traffic laws. Drive the speed limit. Pay attention. Check, all right? Like, it's, it's not something that's going to tax God's energy, okay? You know, what I'm saying is, is 
and I, I pray it with my family when we get ready to, you know, like we get ready to leave on a long trip. I, I pray it with my family. I'm not saying it's a bad prayer, but it's, it's not something that requires a lot of God's energy. Or, or if when you were in school, and maybe some of you that are still in school, how many of you prayed this prayer? God help me do well on this test. And if I hadn't prayed that prayer, I'm certain I'd probably still be in school. But all I'm saying is, is this. Atheists do well on test two. Atheists do well on test two. And, and, and again, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with praying that prayer, but study, okay? Study. And, and, and those things are all kind of things like God doesn't have to get geared up for. And, you know, all right, now maybe I am poking a little bit of fun, but, but you know, we pray things, when, especially when I was in high school, I'd pray, God, please help my face clear up before the weekend. <laughs> like, that's the stuff that we pray for. And, and I think God is just going, you know, I'm a big God. Ask me something big. I created the entire world. I've got all of this supernatural divine power at my fingertips. Ask me something big. You ask me this stuff that will work out anyway, that you don't need my divine power for. You don't need my divine intervention for. Ask me something big. I'm a big God. Ask me something big. And you ask me this stuff. Ask me something big. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't pray any of those things. Keep praying all of that stuff. But the thing that all of our prayers, all of your prayers, all of my prayers, you know what they all have in common? Is at the center of all of our prayers is who? Me. Us. In fact, I'm just guessing if God had answered all of our prayers last year's, I mean, I mean the ones that we prayed week in and week out, day in, day out, I'm just guessing if, if God had answered all of those prayers, you know who would be better off? The only person that would be better off? Is you, maybe a family member. And you, you'd have a job or you'd have a better job or, or your kids would have gotten into a better school or, or you'd have a better GPA, something like that. But the only person that would be better off is you. And again, I'm not saying you should quit praying any of those things. My, here's my concern, though, is that when self-centered prayers get together, they, they start turning into self-centered Christians. And when they all get together as self-centered Christians, they 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 get together and they become an inwardly focused church. And when an inwardly focused church starts meeting regularly together, it just becomes church. It just becomes a building. And guess what happens? We gather together in a building and we quit worrying about the mission and the purpose of, of, the, ter- of the church altogether. And then we, we start gathering together and we, get, and we just begin to get on each other's nerves and eventually we start looking for other buildings to go to and that we call a church. That's what happens. And we're no longer focused on, on the mission and the purpose of what God had in mind when he launched the church. But see, if you're here, I know this about you. You want to be a part of something bigger. You want to be a part of something bigger than that. So, so big churches on God's big mission pray big prayers. Big churches on God's big mission pray big prayers. And so I want to challenge you to start praying a different kind of prayer. I want to challenge you to pray, to add something to your prayers. In fact, at the end of this message today, I'm going to challenge you to pray a very specific prayer. And so we're going to look at how the early church prayed. And I'm going to, actually, I'm going to challenge you to pray their prayer. And we're going to look at it in just a moment. But before we start their story, before we get to, to what they prayed, I've got to, we've got to look at the story ahead of their story. And so I'm, I know I'm running out of time, so we've got to start moving quickly, all right? So, so hang with me. All right, so 
Day one, remember last week, day one, 3,000 people joined the church. It was a big day. Peter, uh, the, the 120, they go out into the streets. They're preaching Jesus uh, rose from the dead. 3,000 people responded. It's, it's a big launch of the church, and, and everything's moving. A few days later, Peter and John, they are going to the temple, and the temple is the epicenter of Judaism, okay? The epicenter is where God lives in the minds of Jews, and, and Peter and John, they are Jews. And so they're going to the temple to pray, but now they're Christians. They're followers of Jesus. So there's a little bit of conflict. There's a little tension in their minds because they're, they, they were brought up good little Jewish boys. But now they're Christians. They're followers of Jesus. So there's, this, there's a little tension. But they're going to the temple to pray. And on their way to the temple, they, they come across this guy who's, who's lame. And by the way, Peter and John, if there's Jesus, then there's Peter and John, then there's the rest of the disciples, and then there's like everybody else. If you were brought up Catholic, Peter was like the first pope. And so he's like the most important person in Christendom at this point. But on their way to the temple, Peter and John, they pass a guy who has been lame since birth. And uh, we don't know his name. It, it doesn't tell us. But what the Bible does tell us is that he's, he's sitting outside the temple. and He's got his can there. He's got his hands out. And he's, he asks Peter and John for some money. And they say, we don't have any money. We can't give you any money. But what we can do is something better. We can do something better for you. We want you to just get up and walk. And so the guy gets up and walks. And so I'm making up some details here because we don't have them in Scripture. So just imagine with me for a moment. So the guy gets up and walks into the temple with Peter and John. And, and I think, I imagine he's running around the temple. He's, and, and people are starting to notice it. They're like, hey, that, that's Frank. We don't know that his name was Frank. Um, it doesn't say. So we're just calling him Frank for this. And so they're like, hey, that's Frank. I've known Frank since I was a boy. Frank's never been able to walk. What's Frank doing in here? How did, how did that happen? And you know, you know you're not supposed to run around in church, right? That's like rule number one. Don't run in church. And Frank is running all around. And so it's, it's creating some commotion. It's creating a stir. And it was one thing for Peter and John and the disciples to be creating a stir out in the streets. But now Peter and John, they're in the temple, and they've created a stir. And so Peter gets everybody together, and he begins to preach a sermon in the temple. And Peter had no business preaching a sermon in the temple. He was not an authority. He was not a priest. He had no business doing this. And so he begins to preach a sermon in, in the temple. And the religious leaders, the, the authorities in the temple, they didn't like this. And so Luke tells us by the end of the day, by the end of the message, basically over 5,000 people had become Christians. The original 3,000 from day one and another 2,000. So now you're looking at 10% of the population of the city of Jerusalem have become Christians. There's a big, big stir. This is big news. And so, at the end of the day, these religious leaders, these, they, they're not liking this. And so they, they end up having Peter and John arrested. They, they haul them off to jail. And the, the original gang, they're, they're a little concerned about this. The 120, they're a little concerned about this because they remember what happened to Jesus when they arrested him. They said, oh, they crucified him. Peter and John, we may never see them again. So they're scared. They're scared to death because they remember what happened. And so they, they're thinking, we'll never see Peter and John again. Unfortunately, they do. They, they arrest Peter and John, and the next morning, the religious leaders, they pull Peter and John out of jail. They bring them in, and the, the, the leaders in the, of the temple say, hey, what is this thing that you keep talking about? You keep talking about this resurrection. What is it that you're talking about? And Peter says, I'm so glad that you asked. Being the good preacher he is, he says, let me tell you what I've been talking about. And Peter launches into another sermon right there. And he, he concludes his sermon with this. He says, it's Acts chapter 4, verse 12. He says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name. Talking about the name of Jesus. He says, for there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. And you know what's interesting, just historically speaking? 
Did you know that since this time and before this time, there's never been another human being whose name has been mentioned as a means of salvation? There's never been another name who, that has been declared as the means of salvation. It's only happened one time. This is it. There's no other name by which we must be saved. This is it. This is the only name, the name of Jesus. Well, this just really irks the, the religious leaders, the, the leaders of the temple. But the problem was that the guy that had been healed, Frank, you remember him, the, the one that's running around church, he, he came to the meeting. He's standing there. I, in fact, I imagine he probably didn't sit down all night. He stood there the whole time, and everybody knows that this is a miracle. And so you can't exactly punish the miracle workers. And so it goes on, verse 13, it says, When the, they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed, Frank, they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing that they could say. So they say to Peter and John, here's what basically happens, we're going to let you go, but shut up. Don't come in here anymore. Don't be talking about this Jesus fellow. Don't, you, you go out there, we're going to let you go because you did this good thing, and, and it's not going to be good for us. It's going to be bad publicity for us if we do anything to you, but, but be quiet. Just go out there and, and be good little Jewish boys and, and leave us alone. And, and Peter had this real na nasty habit of when he was preaching of, of blaming the Jewish leaders for crucifying Jesus. He would say, oh, and, you know, he, he'd make a good point and say, and oh, by the way, it was you that crucified him. And then he'd say something else and, oh, by the way, you crucified him. And, and they didn't really like that. They felt picked on by that. And, th and so finally they say, and quit blaming us for this. Go, go out there, do whatever it is that you do, and quit blaming us for this. And Peter looks at them, fresh out of jail, still with the stench of jail on him, hadn't even been able to brush his teeth that morning, and says, you all do what you have to do. But we're going to do what we have to do because we cannot be quiet about the thing that we have seen. And so they, they take off through the streets, and Peter and John, they find the group, Mary and James and Bartholomew and Andrew and all the other disciples, and, and they meet up with them, and they get with them, and everybody breathes a sigh of relief. And they all breathe a sigh of relief because, you know, they're good, they're fine. You know, they didn't know if they would ever see each other again, you know, and, but they're, they're all fine. They've barely escaped with their lives, and, and everything is good. And then Luke tells us that they pray. And I'm going to show you the prayer in just a minute, but can you imagine how we would have responded at that point? I'll tell you how I think we would have responded. But how would you respond? You almost lost God number one and God number two. You almost lost Peter and John. They spent the night in jail. They barely escaped with their lives. So what are you going to pray for? What are you going to pray? I know how we would pray because we're Americans. We would pray the kind of prayers that we always pray. We'd pray for protection. We would say, God, protect us and don't let us and bless us and keep us from this and always and cover us in a hedge of protection. I don't even know what that means, but it's just what my grandpa always prayed for. In fact, here's what I think we would have said. We'd have probably said, hey, let's have a little staff meeting. Guys, look, here's what we're going to do. First of all, Peter and John, you all can't travel together anymore. You're too important. Peter, when you go, John, you stay. John, when, when you go, Peter, you stay. You all don't get to travel together anymore. All right, number two, we need more security. Guys, you all are too important. We need, we need more people with you guys. Get some sunglasses, black earpieces. You all, you all stay. Stay with them. Number three, we've got to tone down the rhetoric, all right? Peter, no more R word. No more talk about this resurrection. Talk, talk about talk about prayer. John, talk about love. Do something like that. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Talk about that. Nobody knew what that meant anyway. Talk about something like that. People are used to going to church and not knowing what the preacher was talking about anyway. Talk about, talk about something. And then when everything dies down, when everything dies down, then we can kind of ramp things back up a little bit. And Peter, please, for the love of everything that's holy, 
please stop with this, there's only one name under heaven stuff. That just really gets under people's skin. Please stop talking about that. That's how we think, isn't it? That's what we would have done. That's not, that's not what they did. Let's look at what they did. Here's how they prayed. Are you ready for this? Acts chapter 4, verse 24. It said, when they heard this, the, the report of Peter and John, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In other words, before we ask you for anything, we just want to remind you that we know who we're talking to. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And so now they're going to quote an Old Testament passage that just predicted that the Messiah would be persecuted and mistreated. And so they quote this verse because they know the Old Testament. They say, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. And then they bring that verse into their context and they say that's exactly what happened in their prayer. Said, indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city. In other words, this is recent history. And, and so they're praying, they're, they're going, God, you're the greatest. You're, you're the sovereign God. You predicted that these kind of things were going to happen. And sure enough, they happened right here in this city that Herod and Pilate rose up against your anointed one. And then look at this next part of their prayer. He said, they did. That is Pilate and all these other evil people. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand. They believed that none of these events were spiraling out of control. That somehow sovereign God sovereignly oversaw even the crucifixion of their friend. And then they get to, the, the, to their prayer request. Check this out. Here's where they're going to ask for something. They, they're, they're getting to the gimme, gimme, gimme part. That's where we usually start. Lord, thank you for the day. Now, gimme, 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 right? That's where we start. But here's what they asked for. Now, Lord, consider their threats. Here's the request. Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Enable your servants to speak with great boldness. All right, time out. Let's take a 30 here because I just got to... Before we even finish their prayer, boldness? They're asking for boldness? Isn't boldness what got them into this? Isn't boldness what created the problem? Isn't boldness what landed these guys in jails? Isn't boldness what created this antagonistic spirit between the religious leaders and them? Isn't boldness what created the chaos out on the streets? Isn't boldness what started all of this? I mean, boldness, really? Like, that's what they're asking for? From a 21st century perspective, i got to say, these guys are pretty bold already. I mean, they stepped right out on the street. Peter's a, he's a street preacher that they actually took seriously. I mean, he stepped right out on the street. He's talking about the resurrection, and 3,000 people responded. I think they got boldness covered. You're good, right? Boldness. Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Now let me, ask, let me ask you this question. Have you ever in your life prayed for boldness? Do you remember the last time you prayed for boldness? Is it even in your vocabulary to ask for boldness, to ask God for boldness, to give us boldness to speak His Word, to represent Him in the marketplace, in our neighborhood, with, with our friends and with our family? I mean, we, we pray prayers every now and, and once in a while to, you know, to help, for God to help him or her become a Christian. You know, I'm not going to say anything, God, but help them become a Christian. 
and then I'll say something, right? But, but do, we even, do we even ask God to, to enable us to speak appropriately, to speak with boldness? Now, I'm not saying pray for weirdness. I want to be clear because there is a fine line between boldness and weirdness, and, and we're going to talk more about this next week. I'm not saying weirdness. You know, like a bumper sticker, walk in, Jesus is risen from the dead, and you get taken out, and they take your key card and all, all your stuff. I, I'm not saying that boldness. Have you ever considered boldness? Listen to me. Listen to me on this. Do you know why the message of Jesus got to the 21st century? We asked that at the very beginning of this message. Do you know why we know the story of Jesus? Do you know why it made it to the 21st century? It's because the first century Christians had and prayed for boldness. We don't even think about it for the most part. But this is just the first thing that they asked for. They asked for two things. This was the first thing. Boldness. They asked for boldness. Enable your servant to speak with great boldness. And then they asked for something even more extreme. Check this out. Verse 30. The second thing they asked for. Stretch out your hand and he'll perform sign, he, stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Read that verse again. Look at it. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Have you ever asked God for that? No, because we don't go to one of those type of churches, right? I mean, really, that, that verse right there, we don't go to one of those type of churches. It, it, it freaks us out a little bit. It, it, we don't like that. that. That's weird to us. Just let's be honest. There are some churches where that's okay. We're not one of them, right? That, that makes us a little uncomfortable. And that verse gets a bad rap. You know why? Because it makes us uncomfortable. And I'm not picking on you. Maybe you, want, maybe you grew up going to one of those churches, and that's okay. But this is weird to us because we, because we don't understand what they were asking for. But here's what they were asking for. They were asking to be able to go out into their community among people who did not believe and to live their lives in such a way that, that people who didn't believe, who were skeptical, and, and who had every reason to be skeptical, that they would see something in, in their community, in their marketplace, in, in their world where they lived and go, oh, that must have been an act of God. What if we began to pray our version of this as a Christian? God, would you please stretch out your hands and do something through me in my secular community, among my unbelieving friends, among my anti-church friends, among my friends that have been burned by religion and have every reason in the world. God, would you, God, would you be willing to stretch out your hand and do something unusual, not for my benefit, not in the church, but for the benefit of those who don't believe. Now, this is important, and we're going to wrap this up. Don't miss this. All the miracles, the miracles that were all done in the New Testament, they weren't for the sake of the people that the miracles were performed on. Now, that might sound counterintuitive to you, but the miracles that were performed, they were not done for the sake of the people that, that they were performed on. Now, don't get me wrong. It was a good day for them. The lame guy, Frank, who was healed, it was a good day for him. But you know what happened to Frank eventually? He died. Frank's not still living. You've never met Frank. You will not meet Frank on this side of heaven. He died. And you've never met anybody from the first century that was healed uh, in today's world. They, you know what happened to all of them? They all died. You know why? Because the point was not so that they would live forever on this side of heaven. The point of all of those miracles was that, that people in that community would say, oh, that must have been something of God. Tell me more. The disciples, when they prayed this, they were just asking to be able to go out into the community and to demonstrate the power of God, not for their sake, 
but for the sake of what God was doing through the church in their community. So let me ask you, can you imagine what would happen if our church began to add to, not subtract, but add, to your, add this to your prayers? Pray everything that you've been praying, but begin to add to your prayers. And God, thanks for this day. And you can even say, safe trip, my face won't break out, get a better job. And would you give me boldness with my friends? Would you give me just, you know, I'm afraid to even ask you, God, but, but would you give me boldness so that I would see opportunities and I would take those opportunities? God, I'm not a bold person, but would you give me boldness? And God, would, would you stretch out your hand and would you do something through me in my sphere of influence that would possibly get my friends who have just written you off, who don't want anything to do with church, who, 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 who just, they don't want anything with church. Would you do something that would give them possibly a reason to give you a second look? Can you imagine what would happen if we began to pray like first century believers? I'll tell you what will happen. I know this without a doubt. You will begin to see more opportunities to take advantage of because God made you that way. It's human nature. When you begin to look for things, you'll see things. And when you began to pray, and when I began to pray, God make me bolder and God give me opportunities, and God stretch out your hand, you're going to see things that you haven't seen before. And perhaps God is going to do some things through, through you that God would not have otherwise done through you. All I'm saying is this, is that the way you pray and the way that I pray is an indication of where our hearts are. The way that we pray is an indication of if we are still on track to pursue God's mission and God's plan for our community and for our friends and for our world. Or if suddenly this is becoming like it is for so many Christians and so many churches around the world that this is just becoming a little too much for everybody. So here's what I want us to do through the re remainder of this series. I want you to add to your prayer. God, make me bolder. And God, give me boldness. And God, this part kind of freaks me out, but God, stretch out your hand, and if you could do something in my life that would cause people around me to go, hey, hey, that's, that's got to be God. If you could do that, then, then do it, because I'm open. I want to be on mission. I want to be, be a part of the movement. I want to be the church in my community and in my world. Do you know what I think? I think God is going to answer that prayer for us if we're willing to take that risk. So here's what we're going to do to close. We're going to close a little bit different than we normally do. In a minute, I'm going to have us all stand. And I know this is going to be a bit strange, but, but we're going to close our service by reading this prayer together. If, um, we're going to read a prayer together, and then we're going to sing. But um, if you're not a Christian, you don't have to read it. You, don't have, you can mumble it, or you don't have to say anything. But if you are a Christian, if you are a Christian, you have to. It's, 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 it's an all skate. You have to. Um, and here's why you have to, have to. Because if you're a Christian, the first century church prayed bold prayers. And I'm telling you this. Our, our, our prayers, my prayers, your prayers, they would have never gotten the story of Jesus out of the first century. They just wouldn't have because our prayers are all safety conscious. And, and God, uh, please protect me and help me not to skin my knee. Amen. All right? That's what we pray. But we are responsible for for getting the church to the next generation. We're responsible for handing the church off to the next generation better than it was handed off to us, right? And so, so we're going to stand and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna pray this prayer. So would you stand with me? It's going to be on the screen. And I know this is going to be weird because this is not what we normally do, but would you just pray this along with me? We're going we're gonna to pray it twice. Father, Enable me to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of Jesus. Amen. I know it feels a little weird, 
but we're going to do it one more time, all right? Are you ready? Father, enable me to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of Jesus. Amen.